Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Labor uncertainty, spoilage, commodity cost craziness, relentless competition from Walmart, and increasingly, Amazon. Net-net profit margins that are lucky to hit 4%. Why in the world would anyone invest in the supermarket business? That is the question du jour here in Central Virginia, where we are in the throes of a grocery arms race. It's vicious and delicious. What does it tell us about the future of the industry and region? Full disclosure, stay with us. Broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by Health Warrior, makers of Chia Bar Super Snacks. I love them in apple, cinnamon, and mango, but you can also get them in chocolate peanut butter, banana nut, coffee, acai berry, dark chocolate cherry, and I'm told that the coconut just always sells out. Check them out at healthwarrior.com. Joining us here in Richmond, Virginia, the epicenter of this epic supermarket battle of the bands, are uh, three Blue Ribbon guests that I kind of put together to tell us what this means about the region, what this means writ large for the country. We have Scott Ucrop, director of New Richmond Ventures. It's a venture capital firm here. He was formerly vice president of sales and marketing at Ucrop Supermarkets, the dearly beloved and departed Ucrops for about six years. Uh, Thank you for joining us, sir. Glad to be here. Thank you. Brandon Fox, food and drink editor at Style Weekly, a self-proclaimed supermarket industry consolidation nerd. Uh, She and I talk about this incessantly. And finally, we get to put our uh, voices to microphone for you. Thank you for joining us, Brandon. Oh, I'm glad to be here, too. Thank you. And Andy Brownstein, CFO and general counsel of Global Realty Services Group. He has his finger on the pulse of all of the real estate action that's going on, the way the West End of Richmond is being devoured by the likes of Wegmans. Suddenly, Publix is coming in, the 10-ton giant from Southeast, uh, where I grew up in Florida with them. Kroger is boning up. It's building out its superstores. You're talking about delivery. Amazon is nipping on the heels. We have Whole Foods, Lidl, Aldi. It's just craziness. And not to even mention Fresh Market, which apparently is in the crosshairs uh, of acquisition conversation by Kroger. What do you make of all this, Mr. Ucrop? Well, it's always been sort of an exciting place here in Richmond with respect to just everyone's had their sights on it. And it goes back to what I see a little bit is Richmond has always been a good test market just because of the demographics. And a lot of people have their sights, as I said, just given the geographic location. It sort of was a natural spot as we see it now as Wegmans was coming south, Publix was coming north. Harris Teeter probably would like to have been here, but then Kroger picked them up. And so we've probably always been overstored here. And it does amaze me the number of people that are still continue to come at all segments of the market from the the high end down to the low end and the Aldi's and the Lytle's. And so it's increasingly getting more and more segmented and more and more challenging, I think, for each of these retailers. But what is everybody chasing? What's the holy grail? Do they see that uh, Richmond grocers, for example, uh, like to buy more prepared foods? What, What moves the high margin needle at a massive supermarket? And by the way, when I talk about massive supermarket, you know, it, it, there's a whole other screenplay to be written here called Waiting for Wegmans. I was at uh, the Kroger on the far west end here, which I thought was decked out and super to begin with, but they're bumping it out with a pizza oven. They're doubling the size of the pharmacy. They have a Murray's Cheese Island, which they imported from New York City. They say that the wine area is really a singles joint. Kroger has a wine sommelier. And I, I mean, 
I don't understand. I, I mean, if this is a single-digit margin business, I read that Publix is lucky to have 6% gross profit margins. What is everybody else chasing? Really just shrinking market share in other markets and just, I think you take a step backwards and look at sort of where people are these days and, and look at number of meals eaten outside of the house and the growth of prepared foods and just thinking about these generations that really One, don't know how to cook. Two, don't have time to cook. And so a lot of it comes down to just, we used to call it back in the day, sort of meal replacement, just really thinking about how do you assemble a meal, just get food, maybe not on the table, but just on your way to the next event. And a lot of it's just coming and going. Even families rarely sit down together. So a lot of it is just how do you get people to eat and just all the different offerings that these stores can have and all the different ways that people are offering food. Food is available not only in supermarkets, but in drug stores and the club stores obviously have been around for a long time. And so there's just this whole convergence and everybody's trying to get in everyone else's pockets. The conventional wisdom we always have, Brandon, and and you've been around here in Central Virginia for a long time, is that... um, Consolidation in this business, when it becomes unattractive and it becomes so commoditized, the likes of Safeway and IGA and other old players, increasingly here, Foodline, which was acquired by um, the, the parent Ahold, which is the Dutch parent company of Martins and Giant Food. A lot of people in New England might recognize Shaw Market, Star Market. They take on different monikers regionally. Um, that's the wisdom that that you kind of get you you get elbowed out of it. And at the same time that these kind of weaker players are getting elbowed out of it, you see these deluxe players. Again, picture the scene here. You have Wegmans putting two locations. Wegmans, which is voted, you know, the article you shared from me uh, from Adweek is one of the most beloved brands in the United States. Retail brands, places to work. Uh, it has a kind of like a Disney World light experience when you go in there. The prepared food scene is top notch. It's Almost like a you know grade B restaurant. Um, how I mean, how are these guys gonna duke it out? Is, is there even room for three of them? You know, two of them. Another player wants to get in. Whole Foods is is boning up. Uh, it's it just seems like a crazy situation going on. It is a crazy situation. And then when you also think about, uh, well, for instance, Whole Foods is spinning off into a smaller line, three sixty five. Supposedly, well, what they want to do is attract millennials. Um, and Walmart has started small stores that are just focused on grocery. Target has had to expand its grocery selections. Um, I'm kind of curious, Scott, when I think about this, is this a situation that looks surprising to us because the market was underdeveloped when Ucrops was in full force? Um I always had the sense that, I mean, if you looked at a map, Harris Teeter left Richmond alone. It was a big blank spot. And Harris Teeter is now owned by Kroger. And it's now owned by Kroger. Um, And that's why they never came. And my sense was they were intimidated to take you guys on. Are we just looking at an explosion that isn't really an explosion that's similar to other markets just because you guys sort of had had a really firm grip on the grocery scene here? That's a great question. I think there's, you know, Harris Teeter and Ucrops back in the day had a very similar go-to-market strategy. And I think it, they really thought, you know, we can't necessarily offer it too much different than what Ucrops is doing is, would, would be my take on it. And so they said, well, let's, you know, we'll go up to D.C. We're going to go other parts of the state and just kind of left us alone here. I think What's changed now is that um, 
when you've got sort of, uh, say, a Publix and a Wegmans, if you kind of look at those their strategies and their their growth to keep on growing, they need to expand geographically, and just the East Coast corridor is a natural way to do that rather than trying to bump out farther west um, beyond that. So this is sort of a, a logical sort of meeting place for, for both of those two organizations. So I think it's really just a, a matter of now just kind of how do we keep growing for, you know, just to show that those returns, those increased um, revenues that they need to kind of show their shareholders or their, their employees. Andy Brownstein, tell us about what it's like on the other side of the table when you look at the books for, uh, you know, a, a proposal to build out one of these super stores. Um, the kind of questions you're asking now amid signs of saturation, what, what's the thinking that goes on in that deliberation? Well, I mean, I think on, on the real estate side, there's still a tremendous demand for grocery store anchored shopping centers. In other words, if you're going to build that traditional strip center or a power center, um, you're still looking for an anchor, and grocery stores remain one of the most attractive anchors to one of those kinds of developments. Um, and they can demand, in many cases, uh, a better rental deal because they know that they're so attractive, uh, and therefore the investment rates, the cap rates in those deals can be driven down by the fact that you've got a high-quality um, grocery store tenant, or even if it's a lower-end grocery store tenant, if it's in an area that is underserved, arguably, you're still going to see a lot of attractiveness to that to that development opportunity. Um, so I think that that still drives a lot of the expansion because real estate is obviously a huge percentage of the, uh, of the cost structure of a grocery store below the gross margin line. Um, so, you know, you've got to make a good real estate deal uh, in order to have a successful grocery store. Now, Scott Ucrop, when we talk about Kroger's, this is a uh, this is a, a you know thirty seven billion dollar market cap firm has four hundred thousand employees. It emanates from uh, Cincinnati. That's where its headquarters are. To the best of my knowledge, I've never seen a truly national supermarket chain. I mean, they're Whole Foods, they're Fresh Markets, but these guys have cobbled together a strategy where you know I remember Kroger, Fred Meyer, City Market, Dillon's, Food for Less, Fries, Harris Teeter, J C King, Supers, QFC, Ralphs, and Smiths. I mean, this takes them from coast to coast, and now they're talking about bolting on fresh market. Uh, I don't understand the economics of the business. Are you getting, is it is it like buying power, uh, economies of scale, the fact that they're cobbling together distribution and therefore protects their margins? What is the appeal of rolling together kind of a national supermarket giant? And this is a company, by the way, I saw a stat that it apparently has a price-to-earnings multiple now. It's stock that's twice that of Apple's. So there's much more interest from growth investors in this stayed supermarket chain than you know the biggest tech company in the world. Wow, that, that is impressive. And I would say what Kroger has done is you sort of listed all the different, I guess, um, chains that they've sort of acquired and rolled up. They've done a really nice job of maintaining those beloved sort of. Um, chains that were local to certain areas. And I think too often when there's a roll-up strategy, the acquiring company tries to put their their stamp too, too much on it and loses sort of that local appeal that people grew Let's up with. Let's unpack that. I mean, you get asked this a lot. I'm sure you you and your family are buttonholed left and right. Why didn't they keep the Ucrop's name? It's so beloved. They kept a handful of the bakery, um, you know, the prepared food names in it. That was so venerable. It was so Richmond. I th- a lot of it just has to do with the way we went to market, sort of the way we were founded um, by my my grandparents. And so we, the family really didn't want to have 
a Ucrop store owned by someone else sure. and with different operating principles and things like that that we had not um, subscribed to. So that was a little bit of just why we wanted to, you know, take our names off the stores at the time just because of the way they were going to go to market. Sure. And so, But you see a Kroger's come in, for example, the Harris Teeter, which is huge in the Beltway, and it didn't mess with that. I mean, you might see things happen behind the scenes with the private label brand or they'll bring in, I don't know, Fresh 365, whatever it's called there. Um, you know, these stores have, have been taking share from Whole Foods with their in-house um, brands, especially on their organic Level. And I think that's where the growth is, Robin. I mean, that 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 is a huge economy of scale, right? I mean, if you're able to leverage that private label in both regular and organic foods across a much, much larger platform, there are tremendous economies of scale there, even if there aren't as many economies of scale with their ability to, to purchase branded product any cheaper because they're larger. I think the leverage point is probably a lot different between them and the you know, in the general foods of the world to be able to, to leverage that. I don't know that there's mm. as much leverage where I think there's probably tremendous well, tremendous leverage in a very low-margin business could be a couple basis points, but whatever. Um, I think the buying power there has got to be a lot stronger when you, your distribution is is nationwide, as you say. And at the same time that this is happening, what's interesting is I love seeing how the um, uh, the Asian American and Latin American uh, sections of the aisles have expanded. Even if you go to a Target, what used to be just a small niche area of that has now been annexed out into a whole aisle where you can get – foods that used to be so esoteric, sauces and condiments and beverages that you could only find at a corner bodega. On top of that, Brandon, you as the foodie now see that, what is this called, uh, New Grand Mar- Grand New Market, or what is it that came on the South Side, the big Korean market? Yeah, market. Right, right. Yeah. Grand Market. And um, H Market wants to come here, Global Market. All, mm-hmm. all of these like Northern Virginia, New Jersey-like players who want, they see a boom in the um, uh, Korean-American population, the Vietnamese population here, um, the uh, Central American and Mexican population. I just can I cannot believe it. And we've not even mentioned Aldi and Lidl and Trader Joe's and Whole Foods. I cannot imagine a McKinsey consultant looking at this stuff and saying, yes, go spend your $10 million on opening up a new store. Well, as far as opening up, um, you know, as far as having the interesting ingredients that come and appeal to an immigrant population, you're really actually seeing that kind of expansion in Walmart. You're seeing that's what Aldi is bringing. That's what Little will bring. Um, and you're not seeing that as much, I think, in the larger stores. People, Whole Foods. Whole Foods wants to get you with the impulse buy, with the exotic product. However, if you really want to drill down and get something very interesting, you're not, you may not even find it there. Um, Consumer and- Reports, though, did a study on a median basket of goods from Whole Foods. And their in-house brand versus Kroger's brand, you're actually getting – competitive, sometimes better bang for your bucket of Whole Foods than a Kroger. Sure. Which is really eye-opening. People call it whole paycheck after all. Well, it's with their canned goods. It's with their um, their shelf, their organic shelf items. That's where you can get a really good deal at Whole Foods. You're not going to get it with the produce, and you're not going to get it with the specialty items. But yeah, they they are very competitive. I mean, if you I bet, I bet if you ran a heat map of margin across a grocery store to see where the, the best margin is, you mentioned these these the expanding aisle of specialty food in a Kroger. I'm sure they're making margin there. That is probably somewhere where they're going to make more margin. Is that you think so, yeah, Scott? I mean, say, because they're not going to make more margin on the broccoli, but they're going to make more margin on ho- hoisin sauce or some other thing that I've never even heard of because it, they can't. Unless you're going to buy it online, where are you going to get it? Well, those are the sort of what we used to call the known price items, the KPIs, and so people know what a half gallon of milk 
cost or loaf of white bread cost. But when it comes to specialty items, international items, organic foods, that's the opportunity to have a higher margin. And so, plus you can get milk, like you said, at Seven Eleven, at Walgreens, at you know anywhere. But you can't get whatever that weird hot sauce that goes into the Korean food that I don't even know the name of. Where else are you going to get it? So you can you you know you're you're the you're the until you can buy it online, which we'll sure we'll talk about, you know, that you can charge what you want to charge more or less. Well, and the, along those lines, too, I'm thinking about just the center of the store is a look at these huge stores being built. That's people are tending to shop the perimeter. They the, call the center of the store the morgue now. You've heard that yeah, term in the industry because people are not going to the processed food sections anymore. It's really produce, meats, fresh foods, organic. So there's a lot of very valuable square footage that's kind of fallow. Exactly. And, and maybe you go for those specialty items for, I think, what I see sort of the younger generation's event cooking. So it's not cooking dinner for a Tuesday night, but they're planning a week out for a dinner party with their friends, and they've all found incredible recipes that they want to try. And so that's where they need the special ingredient that may be on the international aisle. It may be at a specialty Korean store or some other um, Asian store. All these uh, volatile they, millennials with their Netflix and chill and Snapchat and well, they, Ubering everywhere. They apparently, uh, and that's true, they go to more than one store as far as studies have shown. They're promiscuous shoppers. They're promiscuous shoppers. <laughs> I but bet that's you that's what in a McKinsey want. report somewhere. They want cheap food too. <laughs> that's the other sort of irony of this, I think, is they want to buy expensive specialty items, but they want their, their total food cost to be low. And it is. It's that outside perimeter where the discount stores really fall down. Um, they're, they, just, they just don't have the quality that you're going to find in a Wegmans or a Publix or a Kroger. Um, I mean, the joke at my house is my wife will go to, to the Walmart and buy a bunch of the staple items, take all the money she saved from doing that, go across the street to the fresh market and buy the, you know, the, the, the fancy meats and shrimp and whatever else she wants there because she doesn't want to buy that or can't get it at, at the Walmart across the street. And it's, it's almost ironic that the Walmart and the fresh market – in, my, in our neighborhood, are literally across the street from one another. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to a USDA Prime blue ribbon panel on the explosion, the mysterious explosion of the supermarket industry here in Central Virginia, the great supermarket wars of 2016. The South will rise again, is what they said. Uh, I don't know if Ken Burns will do a special on this, but I want to get to Whole Foods, which uh, was an industry disruptor, but is really struggling right now. The stock is near a multi-year low. Um, you're seeing them actually you know, think about scaling down stores. Brandon, you talked about their smaller concept. There was something about uh, some article written. It's, people saw a tattoo parlor thing written in it. But I was recently at the big – we have one Whole Foods here in the Richmond area. They're building another one near downtown. But if you see the stuff that they roll out in addition to their expansive hot bar at night, they have a Vietnamese steamed bun station. There is an omelet station on Sunday mornings for young millennial parents and Gen X, Gen Y parents and their kids to come there. Um, they make you a little pancake on the side. They have a growler beer, a craft beer section, not to mention the whole, you know, wine sommelier and everything else. And that all is not working because they're being squeezed so much on the, you know, the everyday staple items that, um, you know, Kroger is kind of beating into the punch. Even Target has a line of organic foods that, that come in and compete with these guys. So what do you see as the future for Whole Foods? Whole Foods is going to have to reimagine itself. I mean, that's what I see as the future. Wegmans is going to come in, and Wegmans does what they do only better and larger. Um, so Whole Foods, they want to have this small concept store. Maybe that can help them. 
Who knows? Um, and they always have Trader Joe's, like a little pilot fish following the shark, uh, coming into every market that they go into. So they're going to have to they're going to have to really rethink how they're doing things. And I always thought Trader Joe's sister company was Aldi. Um, they're now separate. I, I, the all the experience I don't quite understand. You have to get cash out at the ATM. They try to. You bring your own bag. They now. take credit cards, but they just in, a, in an intensely tiny margin industry, they want to make it almost Scandinavian-like in the things that you can and can't have. In exchange, they'll give you staples at, at a it's cut rate. It's kind of like the cost. spirit airlines of the grocery store business. With right? half everything the past is super, of aggression, hopefully. Super and it's cheap, surreal. You know, but you pay for everything on the side, right? You're but paying for your car. You, go, you, you walk know. in there and you think it's a regular brand. Um, and they've completely taken, uh, which I'm not really sure how they're getting away with this with trademarks, but all these store brands will look exactly, almost exactly, like a regular brand. And until you pick up the box and you realize it's not frosted flakes, it's frosted chips or something like that. It almost I mean, sounds North Korean, like a North it's Korean very theme strange. Park. It's a strange experience. <laughs> what, it's a little bit like shopping at a dollar store, frankly, and for groceries. What, what is Lidl? Uh, explain the difference, Scott, Aldi and Lidl. These are two kind of peripheral players, but I look around and suddenly see them up and down Broad Street, and they're opening up in, in, in air pockets that I thought were already well served by Kroger and Martins. I, you know, quite honestly, I haven't been into a Lidl to see it, but these limited assortment stores, back in the day, they were were definitely budget, knockoff brands and those types of things. But I think what they're now serving is sort of this, sorry, it's an overused term, the on-demand society. So it's sort of like people can say, well, I just need these items. I'll get here. Back to Andy's point about Fresh Market and Walmart. It's People just know that when I need these five things, I'm going here and I need these 10 things. This is my place the size of those stores is attractive from just in and out quickly. And then supplementing with Amazon Prime or whatever is another sort of piece of the puzzle that's all makes it even more complex. It feels like it segments into sort of three basic categories when you're going to shop for food. You're either going to shop just for price, right? You're a price shopper. You're going to shop at Walmart or you're going to shop at Aldi Lidl because you know the prices are bottom dollar prices. You're going to shop for convenience, whatever's closest. You go to the Kroger around the corner from you because that's where you go because it's near your house. You know the pricing on some things are probably pretty good. Some things maybe things are not as good. But your time is more valuable than that, so you're going to go to the traditional supermarket. Or, or it might be the Walmart if it's nearby you. Um, or you're shopping for the experience, right? That's when you're going to the Whole Foods, you're going to the Trader Joe's, you're going to the Fresh Market, you're going to the Wegmans, right? The the experience, the, the feel-goodness of where and how you buy your food matters to you more. Those seem to be the sort of the three ways that people think about how they're shopping for food. And they're all butting up against one another, right? Both geographically as well as, um, you, you know, the way that they're trying to brand their shopping experience. Aldi doesn't advertise themselves that way, but that's what they are, right? They're that bottom dollar opportunity. Now, I was blindsided, everybody. Robin Farzad here again because my guests are doing such a great job at interlocuting. Um, I was blindsided by this news a week ago that Publix uh, is adding Virginia as its seventh state, and it's putting a redoubt here on the West End, The what I thought purportedly, Andy, was the oversaturated West End of, 
of uh, Richmond, Virginia. Uh, Publix is a Florida establishment. It's based out of Lakeland, Florida. It's family owned by the Jenkins family. Uh, even the new CEO, uh, Todd Jones, started off, I think, as a as a you know a, a, a frontline worker there. Yeah, I always thought of it kind of as like our Florida U crops. There was that ethic there. Yes, they were still open on Sundays. I had a traumatic experience in my childhood when I was five. You know, I recently came to the United States and I was in the checkout aisle with my dad. I just casually took a box of a little thing of orange Tic Tacs. And um, in the car, I leaned in and I offered him a Tic Tac and he goes, I I didn't buy you Tic Tacs. Uh, I goes, no, no, they're just giving them away. They're in the aisle and everything. So he just very calmly U-turns back around, takes me to the customer service line. And he says, tell the manager what you did. I said, I took these. And the guy's like, sir, it's okay. You can, you can pay for it if you want. It's like, no, tell him what you did. Tell him you're sorry. I said, I'm sorry. He goes, okay, give him the microphone. My dad made me say the Pledge of Allegiance to the entire store. And he was prepared to have me say uh, the Star Spangled Banner and everything to show that we were very patriotic Americans. And he's like, sir, it's okay, really. Uh, just take it at this point. Take it, take it. And I didn't go back to Publix for like eight years. <laughs> um, we had Winn-Dixie back then as a foil and to a lesser extent Albertsons. But by and large, those brands disappeared. And then Publix became almost the natural monopoly of Florida, in addition to Whole Foods and Fresh Market and Walmart and Target doing what they're doing. I would think that it would stick to that knitting and uh, keep its protected monopoly, you know, like cable has a natural monopoly cable companies. But they're yet expanding into an area that we see that has true foils to the Publix name. I mean, where has Publix gone head to head with Wegmans ever, you know? Uh, I know that in, in Georgia, Publix goes head-to-head with Kroger. And again, it goes back to my first question, Scott. I don't see the inherent appeal of this business, this holy grail, this this uh, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that these guys are chasing. It's certainly not 6%, 5%, 4% gross margins. I think it's just continued pursuit of, of revenue. How do you, how do you grow? And it, you can't um, continue to squeeze the bottom line any tighter, so it really is top-line growth, and that's geographic expansion. But when, so, they, when they teach you in business school, if you get all this, it's a huge cash flow business. We know Kroger is a cash flow animal. If it's throwing off all this other cash, you either buy back the stock or you, you, you do capital improvements, you do things on the margin. But going into a state that is, is significantly served, I can't even count how many chains we talked about here. Again, I know I'm smashing my head against the wall, but I do it for you, dear listener, because I love you and I want you to learn something. Somebody, you know, pretend like you're a rabbi, Andy Brownstein, and I'm asking you the meaning of life in the supermarket industry. You know, hold my hand and tell me well, what's I up. Think, I think Scott already hit on it in some respect. I mean, there is a in, enormous fixed cost infrastructure to, to a grocery store business, right? So since you can't grow your margin by raising your prices or really cutting your your cost, but so much. Oh, you could bump out into a pizza thing. You know, they've done stuff in the past. I remember, you know, uh, I think Publix back in the day, did it own Eckerd Drugs? No, no. There are things like Fred Meyer, for example, with the jewelry store, Albertsons and Jewel. Uh, If you go into the big Kroger's here, they have Starbucks. I don't don't disagree with any of that, but I think there's probably multiple paths to the promised land in that sense. You know, I think that, yes, you could do a Kroger's Oh, you are continuing with the biblical metaphor. (laughs) Exactly. I think that there— Let my people go, Brownstein. Let my people shop. Right. Um, I think there is— Yes, you could build pizza ovens in these stores. You could could expand the, the prepared food section. But their, their, their path is to grow market share, and they're leveraging a different set of 
costs. They're going to leverage their their overhead costs, their 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 executive and management costs, their over fixed infrastructure. They're going to leverage their brand name, and they believe they have a brand name that travels. But the other thing to say about Publix expansion into Virginia, while they've announced they're going to grow more stores here, you have to look and see what they did. They they they're opening two stores. I don't know about the store in Bristol, but at least the store here. We talked about this before the show earlier. That specific location is one where Ucrops originally was going to go many years ago. That little section of West End of Richmond actually isn't really overstored. I mean, there is room. There's even an argument that it's understored in that little submarket. You, but again, you're not in. So count, I think you're Publix, not talking about that massive 50-ton elephant of, of uh, Wegmans that's no, about no, to hit right I, there. I understand that, but it does I, require you to drive out do, there, and it's a pain. Well, there's a lot of people that for which going to that Wegmans would be farther away than this Publix, and that's sure. what I'm getting at. Getting back to that sort of idea of either price, convenience, or experience, and I think Publix isn't the experience shop. Or, you know, shopping, it's convenience shopping. It's oh a, no, it's experience, my friend. The Boar's Head sub is going to rock this town's <laughs> world. So, I grew up with that. So I think that the that I learned the little hard spot, way that public you know, is an experience. They, I'm sure they're coming, and they say they're coming in order to make that you know to make that announcement to the marketplace. But they picked, and again, I can't speak to Bristol, which is a much smaller town, but they picked a very specific location that I think meets their needs and puts them in a real estate geography that's going to make it um, easier for them to be successful than simply staking out a claim like Wegmans is going way further out in the West End to get that brand new shopping center. This is an infill market location where the housing stock around there is already beginning to mature. That's not a brand new neighborhood anymore where they're going. And they're surrounded. There's actually not a lot of grocery shopping available within, call it a two-mile radius, unless you want to hit your listeners don't know about this, but you know, if you unless you want to hit the mess on Broad Street, this is where you're going to shop. It used to be cow tipping territory, and now yeah, you know. sure. Brandon Fox, my foodie friend, I'd like to ask you. You take this example here of Carytown, um, in kind of whatever Midtown Richmond, Virginia, which is a low rise, kind of funky, very cheerful area. But um, in in sharp relief, right? You have this massive Kroger across the street from a massive Martin's, which used to be a Ucrops, um, and then behind that is a Fresh Market. Uh, which used to be kind of like a wasteland. It was like a Verizon station of some sorts. And then opposite Verizon, a, a frequent sponsor of the show, Elwood Thompson's, and they're all fighting for similar customers. The rumor now, uh, the, the word on the street is the Wall Street Journal and others reported is that Kroger's interested in potentially taking out Fresh Market. You've seen situations before where they're across the street, like in Gaten Crossing, and it's like a death match. You, you know, the U-Crops there, which then turned into the Martins, used to be the big destination. Kroger's comes there. There's not room. It, it just is not rational in any way for these guys to be next door neighbors. And so you look at the arms race just in a vacuum here in Carytown across the street from each other. This Kroger has become a singles destination. You know, you, you go in there, the wine scene, the wine and cheese scene on a Thursday night is, I mean, it's, it's pretty lewd and lascivious. Um, and it's great. <laughs> I think people are, you know, and I say that in the best way possible. I'm not a lawyer. I don't play one on TV. I think you went to law school, Andy Browns. But anyway, um, in a great way, it's lascivious. Um, and then people go there. And so it must make itself indispensable to millennials in a different way. They have the Marie's Cheese Island they have a pretty solid sushi bar that I see, you know, well-meaning people buy things from. Um, they're, they're building on a Starbucks inside. The prepared food scene is good. The grocery scene is good. The semi-separate pharmacy and um, bakery look really good. So the player across the street, the legacy player, what, what is the option for, for him? I mean, does he have to kind of – is this arms race like, okay, do I, I fall on my sword and pick an area that hasn't been nibbled over or do I – 
stock up again? Do I staff up? Do I put a Ferris wheel in the parking lot? I mean, what is the alternative at this point? I mean, you're talking about Martins. Yeah. That's your question. Um, well, you know, you have to think about three Martins stores have closed sort of in the greater Richmond area. Um, but at the same time, I, I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but Martins had the biggest market share here in Richmond with Kroger coming in number two. Um, and I think there's a lot of holdover loyalty from U-Crops. Also, they have the U-Crops prepared food, although Kroger has some, a little bit of that. Um, Martin's, if they have Fresh Market owned by Kroger behind them and they can get those kind of prices that Kroger can get by volume, it's it's going to be a really dicey situation for them. And I'm not seeing them stepping up at all. Their, their wine sec- selection is horrible. Um, Which the wine selection wasn't even there when it was owned by. It U-Crops. wasn't there, and it but seemed it like a missed much, opportunity. But in six years, how much these guys have had to up your game? It's not. It's not just one thing to have a wine selection, but you have to hire a wine sommelier, right? Like they do, and you have to have tastings, and you have to bring in Murray's Cheese Shop with that licensing agreement. It is crazy. I never, and I, I used to somewhat cover the industry. We have uh, an article here um, in the Orlando Sentinel. Now, Publix, which is Florida-based, it kept its service-first mantra and fended off competition from discounters such as Walmart and Aldi in the throes of the Great Recession. So it's become the envy of the industry with gross margins of nearly 6%, while competitors are registering only 1% to 2%. I mean, I can get 2% in a you know, measly treasury bond. If I have excess cash flow, again, this goes back to the meaning of life questions, Scott Ucrop. I mean, these guys know groceries, they know supermarkets, a hammer is going to want to hit every nail that it sees. But there are other opportunities. I mean, they could put their money in an S&P index fund, they can diversify into things that aren't purely correlated with the grocery industry. And now you know this as an investor, you're you have a portfolio, you have exits, you have uses of capital, you have, um, uh, drains on your capital, sources of capital. What is it from this perspective now that you've been removed from this industry for a while? It's, I think it goes back to sort of people sticking with what they know, and sometimes they're in that channel and haven't looked at other opportunities. And, and again, I go back to my ancient history of 14 or 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when we got into prepared foods, we were sort of competing for share of stomach and how do you differentiate yourself and have sort of items that no one else has. And so we got into our own bakery items, our own prepared foods, some of our own um, other perishable types of things. Again, it was about differentiation. Um, now, I'm not answering your question, but I'm going back to Brandon's piece about Martin's sort of surrounded by Elwood's Fresh Market and Kroger. What that Martin's maybe needs to do is say, look at the neighbors around us and they're not all going to want Fresh Market or Elwood or maybe necessarily Kroger. So what are we going to do to differentiate ourselves and really go after the market segment that we want? Again, it's back to that really tight segmentation, which makes it challenging. And to your question is, maybe there is a different way to diversify or this is where grocery store, how do we begin to look at things differently for our investors and our, our Stockholders, so it's a, it's a challenge. It it, puzz, it it definitely puzzles me. The question about diversification, I think, is just a classic sort of corporate finance question. I mean, you said it yourself. Look at Kroger's PE multiple. Kroger's basically what they are. They're a grocery store business. They're a big one, but I think it's sort of their answer is the same as Publix. You know, Publix is private, so it doesn't really matter. 
Publix is semi-private. Semi, so, semi-private. They have but, a very lightly traded stock that they've been very great in rewarding employees with. But the, but the point is basically, look, if you want to be diversified, buy another company's stock. If you want to own grocery, own me. And that's what I think a lot of these guys are saying is that we're going to we're a pure play. It's what we know, and we're much better off reinvesting in what we know than trying to diversify when you can do that yourself, right? You can you know buy another pure play of something else if you want to diversify your holdings. Um, I think they they view that. And, and I think the issue with Martins as well in terms of margin, to go back to a point you made a couple of minutes ago, is part of what they're probably leveraging out is a real estate play in a way. I mean, they've got old leases that are probably very advantageous, that lease in Carytown that we just talked about. They're probably making more money in that real estate on a per square foot basis than some of the newer stores that had to pay up at a much higher lease rate in order to get into the market. Um, and so... The longer-term question is what happens when those leases are up. Well, what is the one metric that stands out the most? If, if these guys open their books to you, Scott, you, you immediately flip the pages and you look for, is it what they're squeezing out of per square feet? What is the most telling metric in this industry? Great question. I think a lot of it is sales per square um, foot. It's also just, again, sort of what what's your average market basket size related to just the number of your customer counts, those types of things. The an item we haven't talked about is just the loyalty data, the the frequent shopper data that really is helping these stores market and kind of target and do some things that um, really find the, the customers that have the propensity to shop. How do you get them to buy more from you when they're in the store? That's always been the name of the game from that standpoint. And Brandon, what, what do you think? Well, that's that was something that I was thinking about that we hadn't talked about at all is the loyalty information, which also sort of goes hand in hand with customer service, um, which I think we really don't have with Kroger, with Fresh, Fresh Market to a certain extent. Um, and then Martin's has really fallen down in that way. And that's what Wegmans brings. Um, and that's what Publix brings is this really deep knowledge of the customer and also an education of their employees in order to help that customer buy more things. You know, we've had a long period, Andy, as you know, as everybody here knows, a long period of complacency in the capital markets and the access to cheap capital and a, uh, a kind of a growing economy. And I wonder if you stress test this and, and you throw back in a situation, all of you guys, akin to a 2007, 2008, 2009, where suddenly it doesn't seem like there's this bumper crop of disposable dollars to support eight or nine grocery chains. What do you see happening like in, a, in a kind of a oh, doomsday scenario? I, I actually think it's probably the opposite because I think in a, in a downward trending market, in a, in a slowing or downward... Downward trending market is out of yoga pose. That's right. right. That's right. right. Okay. Um, you get there from you know downward facing dog, right? Yes. So I think that people start eating at home more, right? They, they may eat they may not buy as many prepared foods. You t- I mean, Scott probably has some knowledge about this, how, how consumers behave in these markets. But, you know, there's a reason that this is considered a, you know, consumer non-discretionary segment, and the multiples always seem to reflect that. I think people go out to restaurants less. They may eat less prepared foods, but they're going to keep shopping at the grocery stores. They may trend down. Walmart always seems to do better in a downward market. The Aldi's and the Lytle's might do better. Um, Wegmans, you know, they, they, you know, Whole Foods, they may struggle in these markets. Um, but I think the, that that the standard run-of-the-mill grocery store, the traditional sort of convenience grocery store, the basic Kroger's, the basic Publix, and the discounters will probably fare just fine. What happens to the basic food lines that they were absorbed? That's Del Hayes was the parent company, and they were absorbed into uh, Giant Food acquired Ahold them, Ahold yeah. acquired them, and Royal Ahold, and they're in the process of shuttering many of them. Is there... 
I mean, I, I think regulators are going to force their hands where in, in the well, situations where they're across well, the street from each other. Well, back to your, your point about Richmond being the battleground, this is actually the only market where Food Lions or Delhaize and Ahold are competing in the same market. So they're, everybody's sort of interested to see if the regulators are going to look at them as, you know, too much competition. And so everywhere else, they're, they're separate. So Scott, um, what does Walmart mean in the grand scheme of things? I imagine it disproportionately hit a food lion, more of a kind of a low frills, um, you know, price sensitive, price only shopper. Walmart, my impression was that it was always, you know, it would look at bananas and produce and bread and milk and stuff like that. I don't know if we call it a loss leader, but they're not looking to, you know, make bank on that necessarily. That and was, it's terrible. Hmm. I mean, the produce is terrible at Walmart. And they, they, they have stepped up their, their game, but really relative to what I guess. But um, I think Walmart, it was a loss leader because they want you to shop the hard goods in their store. You know, as you're picking up your groceries, let's you know, buy TV, some of the higher margin things, other things that are the rest of the store sort of one-stop shopping was the name of the game, but so grocery, they were always undercutting pretty much everybody, plus the buying power that they have. A lot of it goes back to when they first got in the grocery business, the food manufacturers looked at Walmart as not their main bread and butter. So that, you know, in some cases it's like sales to Walmart are just sort of incremental cost and just because we're focused on the grocery segment, not realizing that Walmart was going to be the number one grocery player in the country that they quickly ascended to. So, and Walmart is probably the toughest company to do business with because they know they've got the power and can squeeze their um, their suppliers. And hold that thought because there's a foil to Walmart now that we want to uh, devote the rest of the show to. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking the great supermarket single digit margin civil war of 2016 with my blue ribbon panel here. Uh, Andy Brownstein, Brandon Fox, Scott Ucrop, um, all tried and true veterans of the supermarket battlefield. I don't know what I'm saying, guys. But Amazon, Amazon, that's what I'd like to get at. Because Amazon, I believe now, has a bigger market value than uh, Walmart, which would have been unthinkable just years ago. And here's that rare company that at least if you look at it on Wall Street, here's a guy, Jeff Bezos. He owns the Washington Post. Um, he bought it for $250 million. It's a fraction of his net worth. Maybe he's worth $30 billion. He's not being judged necessarily on his profit-making ability in the core business. Um, they do things that make life difficult for everyone. You know, if the last profit center for Radio Shack were accessories that they could charge $20 for, Amazon swims right in like a great white swimming into a, you know, a school of seals or something and disrupts that. Um, they see shoes, they disrupt that. Uh, malls, you know, even the, even the fanciest malls now, you wonder about foot traffic there because people have gotten so used to buying things on Amazon. And these guys are not shying away from the grocery experience. Andy, you and I talked about this extended level of Amazon Prime where you pay a membership fee over the year and you kind of amortize you know, the cost, it, it spares you kind of the hassle, the cost, the convenience. It's close to $300, but what are you getting in these test markets like Seattle, San Fran, New York? Yeah, I mean, they, they obviously experimented that with the traditional Amazon Prime, which took the decision-making point, which was a sticking point, I think, in the consumer setup. Oh, I don't want to pay for shipping for the uh, case of toilet paper, right? It just doesn't make any sense. But once you take that as a flat cost and they've added all these other benefits on, the music and the video, you get all that included. So they've made it very easy to take that decision away. If there's something you need and it's not time sensitive and you can get it in two days, they make that work. So this, you know, now they've seen that work and they see with the, the uh, f 
Fresh Express, Fresh Direct, I forget the name of it. They're bumping that cost up to $2.99, which is a lot bigger cost. But for somebody who wants that convenience in those markets of having food delivered to them at a, in a specific window of time, they've taken the whole, the whole decision-making nexus out of that, right? I mean, if you're willing to buy it online and have it, have it come to you without being able to pick your own strawberries, um, which, that's a very, which, com- way, very second, compelling. It's second hat. I lived in Manhattan before I came here, and we had Fresh Direct, and people were really hesitant at first. This is a guy who broke off from the big you know, family grocery chain there called Fairway, and they built a, a warehouse in Queens, New York. And people were hesitant at first, but they kept plying you with $25 gift cards and $50 gift cards. And once you got in the habit and you got used to their in-house products and their, um, their ability to pick the right produce for you, you know, they had levels of firmness and this and that. It became, you know, right. second order. Well, and you mean, were open with the with the window, and and you even became friends with the delivery, the delivery guys. guy. Right. Well, grocery is a very habity business, right? I mean, right. I presume that you know that's exactly what we were talking about before. The habit. Where are you going to shop? You, people say, well, I go to the whatever. But Andy, that flopped in the dot com boom. If you remember, with Webvan, um, some of the chains even had Peapod. I think Peapod. Right. You know, and now so you're seeing that version done light, uh, Brandon. There's this Kroger up to the curb. Andy, Andy was telling me that you could, you know, you're leaving work, you could put in your order. And have it held for you by someone who will load your car at Kroger for a small convenience 495. fee. Four ninety five. Do any of you have any thoughts on kind of which which one of these will well, ultimately I, settle the convenience matrix? Two things. I think one is sort of the the dot com dot bomb, the fresh directs and others. It was sort of that last mile that was getting people, and so the the delivery, the special facility. So I think what Harris Teeter's done, what Kroger's doing with order ahead for your car. You know, you're using the existing store infrastructure. It's maybe a, a person that you cover their labor with that extra assembly fee. That's helpful. I think the other thing that Amazon is doing, the second point I was going to make is they've also got Amazon Now, which is not Prime the now. Prime yeah. Now, which is really you can pay $5 or something if you want it within an hour. If, you, if you're willing to wait two hours, they'll deliver grocery for items free. and other things for free. And so they're rolling that that out in markets. Where is that? Is that going to be rolled out imminently here? We have oh, it's, it's here. already here. It's because, here. Because so Richmond we have, ha- well, Richmond has a logistics center. An for enormous Amazon, logistics so center. So again, okay, that's a meteor that crashed into this conversation. But at the same time, it's a spotty kind of product that you're getting. Um, they don't have their own name brand that's but cheaper. But with Learning Curve, Brandon, and this is a company that has scaled Learning Curve True. in the past, and it's gotten out of things that haven't worked. You could see them, you know, taking a loss on this for a mm-hmm. while, and then when they they, they, this is a company that loves information, that loves metrics. When they see what the median order is, the median zone is, uh, inducements, incentives, nudging people, you could see this throwing a significant wrench into the plans of these full-service, full-square-footage, massive players, these multinationals. But they've got to grab people first. I mean, I, I, I mean I've mean, i done a lot of looking How at How many people Prime are, on, are an Amazon member? I mean, this is the thing. True, Grabbing but if people? I want to load my grocery cart up, I can't do it with Amazon right now. I think, um, and but, I need, as a, as a consumer... I need them to do that now. But think about Mrs. Brownstein, who is willing to go to Walmart and get her staples and use the savings to go somewhere else. I mean, multi-homing, what they say you know, in the past where you would have multiple credit cards for different purposes, it's not that difficult when you're talking about an online world and just a handful of well, fresh purchases. I think it gets back to sort of the, the same customer has different channels for different needs. And I think the Prime Now or is going to deliver the Amazon Prime already is sort of things that you just know. I can my store is always out of stock, or Amazon's got a better price, and I only need it once a month. You kind of get in. You can even subscribe to that. So I think 
we all as consumers are all segmenting ourselves and our habits and versus the the neighborhood grocery store. We kind of did it all, and our that's where we went for this. Now we we're everywhere in a segment of uh, ourselves. I, I so. think, the, I th- Raman, I think the, I think the online order and pickup at the store has legs in the, especially in the traditional suburban markets, especially with two income, two working parent people where the, the delivery window for Amazon, unless they really get it down to on-demand delivery, uh, which they could, I think that the, that the convenience of, I know I'm driving by the store on the way home. If I order it on my lunch hour and get it all assembled, I know I can pick it up on the way home. I think that's got a lot of legs in the suburban environment. I think in the more urban, densely populated areas, I think there's a willingness to take the delivery window. And I think that Amazon might have more, uh, or, or their competitors, Instacart and whoever else is doing this stuff, May may have um, better success there potentially, but that says nothing to the tattooed promiscuous millennial who wants to get his or her drink on at the big decked out Kroger with the wine and cheese bar. Well, that's a well, that's, that's not going to be an a, urban location. That's a social event. I mean, that's sort of part of that's and that's where the hand to hand combat in this but, is. But so that's not an urban location. That 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 consumer tends not to be in a fully suburbanized environment where those stores are going to be more prevalent. Maybe the parents with the young kids, once they move out there, you're talking about those We're guys. talking about an urban location here. We're talking about the heart, the, the same store at the heart of Carytown and in the far west end, which is like suburban central, uh, bumping up against where it's like waiting for Wegmans. The, you know, the woman from the Cheese Island came out. I was like, we're getting our game up. Yeah, but remember that Kroger is also within less than half a mile to the wealthiest zip code in the, in the, in the Richmond area. Sure. So, so many moving parts in this, it just blows my mind. And I think I try to get down to the level of an Aldi or Lidl, and what are these guys thinking independently? I mean, there are huge, and, and you report on these things all every week, Brandon. I mean, something happens. These, something happens. You, you see an, an enormous parcel in an area that you thought was a, a wasteland that suddenly they see value in. Right. Well, I mean, I. I I think the discount stores actually have the millennials. Um, it's it's what we keep, you know, pounding that point home of segmentation. But those millennials don't, aren't making the paychecks yet, and so in the meantime, you're building loyalty, and um, you're also providing a lot of convenience because the stores are small and easy. And they can take, they're very accessible, and they can take real estate that none of the other guys are willing right. or able to take. If you look to see where that Aldi on the Boulevard and Broad is going, it is squeezed in behind a Hardee's and a taco shop in a location. Like when I saw it going up, I'm like. Holy cow, how did they come up with that spot? Well, there are a lot of people moving into that super urban area, which but who was else left was for dead three, is, four right. years where ago. Else are they, where else are they going to, you know, well, what I other competitor th- can take that spot? I would think that the Whole Foods would morph with shapeshift enough, you said, like, to look at smaller concepts. I mean, Walmart, but they're moving, for yeah. as massive as they they're were, they've been flexible with their smaller stores. Right, but, but they're going are, 10 blocks in on a much bigger footprint than that Aldi. And what size, are, what's an average size of an Aldi? Or I have no idea, but it's not real big. It's the size of a Walgreens. It's the size of a Walgreens. Yeah, right. so probably 15,000. And mind right. you, uh, by the way, interestingly, at Walgreens, there's, there's, there's a little inside baseball, but you go to New York City, Walgreens, which acquired Dwayne Reed, which was the big incumbent, you know, locally spawned uh, drugstore, they now have an enormous fresh food selection. I don't know if that becomes something that Walgreens, you know, t- to the extent that Walgreens is already embedded as the place that you pick up prescriptions. What if they offered a small produce sure, section? Sure. What if they had a small organic section? This is just so commingled at this well, point. Certainly in a densely populated urban environment, that I think or makes, if makes a lot of sense. to Walgreens advertising, they're saying, park right outside of our door, pick up your staples, your food staples. And so it's a natural extension. 
again, it's all about foot traffic and just. And so foot foot traffic. I've seen crazy things when we had the massive. You know, there was that mall that uh, was derelict for a long time, the Cloverleaf Mall. And when they finally raised it several years ago and figured out what to do with it, it's on the south side of Richmond. They put like the mother of all Kroger's. It was the biggest one, at least on the East Coast. It had a self-contained Starbucks, a jewelry store, which was like a holdout from its Fred Meyer days, uh, a spectacular furniture store. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted you to explain to me. I saw furniture and children's pajamas. To what end? I don't understand what kind of market research goes behind that. I would never go to this place. Oh, I'm picking up some organic milk for the kids. Ooh, sofa. I see a sofa. Right. Like, to, what, what, is it just throwing up spaghetti at the wall? Are they, what are they doing? Kro- well, Kroger has always had a heavy, what in the trade is called general merchandise and sort of more seasonal goods, so lawn chairs and You're things like that. You're talking 1970s, my exactly. friend. Exactly. So th- it's, this has been part of their strategy all along that they've had that. And for whatever reason, they feel like they can broaden that, I don't get it because then you're firmly playing in the Walmart side of things. So I guess the thinking is if Walmart's gotten into food, we're going to get more heavily into the hard goods and those other Well, there's certainly got to be things. margin in it, right? The margin in that, the gross margin in the, anything you see there has got to be way higher. They're than not than the, selling but the, any furniture, I, the, I can tell I you. Say the well, turn, I have not it. seen the it. The turns and just, you got to look at There's no turn of, in it. There's know, no turn. What the return is on that shelf space? And sure. So that that's why I don't get it. I don't get it either in that sense. But and you know if they sell it, they're making the margin. But the turn has got to be very low. Um, but yeah, that's what I understand. And, and and without us getting into jargon, when you see them parking lawn chairs and sofas and pajamas and stuff that I can go to that store for six months on end, all that stuff is there and collecting dust. And it's a whole other morgue part of the store that's telling you that they've kind of run out of ways to pr- productively um, use that square footage. So why in the world are you buying uh, massive outlets elsewhere if you can't squeeze more out of this this chain, which kind of leads me, you know, finally, I want to say, what is the chance? Let's throw a huge grain of kosher salt into this, that this is a speculative bubble. I mean, it's very easy to say that whenever you see expansion like this, but again, we've had a prolonged period of easy money. Um, the, the economy has cooperated for the most part. We had a winnowing out of really weak players. Some were bought by private equity firms. Albertsons was a disaster. Safeway was a disaster. But now the real strong players have 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 risen. And you're seeing these international players like Ahold and Aldi and Lidl. And then the private equity firms might get behind Whole Foods. Who knows? Um, what are the chances, Brandon, that this is a bubble that's going to burst and break many hearts? Well, I think we can look. I mean, I think we can just look at the past. We have 2008. Um, right now, for the first time, eating food out has matched grocery numbers. Um what we saw in 2008 were a lot of restaurants closing, a lot of people shopping at home. Um, so I, I just think you got to keep an eye on what our economy overall is doing. And that's going to tell you if this bubble will burst because I think I, – I believe it is a bubble. Andy Brownstein, what do you think? I don't think it's a, bu- I don't think it's a bubble in, in a more global national sense. I think there's always going to be regional pockets where there may be overexpansion. I think you see a natural winnowing out of stores – Based on having been, you know, the, the the natural progression, the natural selection of it being the wrong real estate, being in the wrong place relative to where they need to be. Um, I think that you know there are chains. You, you mentioned Win Dixie. We're talking about them. They're, they're you know. M- to give you an gone, idea, so. Win Dixie in Miami after its bankruptcy, I kid you not, its most profitable store has morphed into a kosher supermarket. 
Right, right. You that, have to become tactical at that point. Right, I think there's the natural very success, selection. The very successful Martins here on Three Chop that used to be the Ukraps that we all went to has a significant kosher aisle now to serve the Orthodox community. I think that there's going to be a lot of this adaptation in real time in C2. And closing thoughts, Scott Ukrap? Yeah, it's it's going to be really how do you make each store local? You just can't put your stamp on your whole chain and say this is the way we go to market. So there's a, a combination of all those things. And I think back to where I started with just to Brandon's point about food away from home versus food in the home, you know, we go into the next recession whenever that happens. I think there's still an ever-increasing segment of the population that doesn't know how to cook, doesn't know the center of the store. So a lot of times, yes, restaurants are closed, but I think people will just go back to dollar meals and other ways to find convenience food inexpensively that may or may not be from the supermarket. And that was Scott Ucrop, director of New Richmond Ventures, former VP of sales and marketing at Ucrop Supermarkets here in Central Virginia, Brandon Fox, food and drink editor of Style Weekly, and Andy Brownstein, CFO and general counsel of Global Realty Services Group. I have a closing thought for all of you before we say bye-bye. Conversation is going round. People talking about the star who's come to town. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. If I've traumatized you enough. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. We're on NPR One, Acast, iTunes, WRIR, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. A special shout out this week to our friends at Radio IQ. We're nutritious, certified Angus subprime, always baked on premises. We double your coupons and triple your listening pleasure. I'm Robin Farzad, back at you next week.